welcome to another episode of ESG Out Loud. I am ESG Clarity's Global Deputy Editor, Natasha Turner, and today we have the third panel from the Global ESG Summit to play for you. This one was on thematic investing, and it's one that I moderated, so I do hope you enjoy that. We're going to save the last clip from oceanographer Dr. Emma Boland to play with our last panel from the summit, which was on governance, and that will be an an episode coming up in the next week or two. I hope you're all enjoying your summer holidays. Please do get in touch with anything ESG Clarity related and enjoy. Hello everyone, hope you're having a good time. I'm definitely enjoying myself. It's great to be here in person. Uh, Yeah, we're going to talk about thematic investing today and I think it's a great one actually to follow on, especially from the social panel we just heard. Those conversations with clients, clients coming with particular issues and topics, this maybe can be the solution? We'll see. We will find out today. We're going to talk about some of the benefits and drawbacks of this kind of investing for a sustainable future. We're going to have that conversation about clients as well. And then we're going to talk about some of the most important themes, some of the most critical themes of today. And we've just had a chat uh, in the break room and we've agreed to make it spicy. We're going to talk about the controversial themes. So hopefully it'll be very engaging for you before, before the next break. So, yeah, I'm joined today by, by a great panel, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves as we go along. Um, so, to kick off, let me start with, with Tim. Uh, just introduce yourself a bit, and then can we talk about some of the, the benefits and some of the drawbacks of some of, of this kind of investing? Sure. Uh, so, hi, my name's uh, Tim Crockford from, uh, from Regnan. Uh, we are the uh, Sustainable and Impact Investing Arm uh, at Joe Hambro Capital Management. Um, shall I... Let the others introduce themselves first, or shall I go into the uh, the benefits and uh, I can talk? <laughs> so uh, I'll warn you that. All right. Well, let, let's do it. Let's do a whip round then. Uh, I good. hope we all can. Otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> um, my name is Felix Sodi. I'm a portfolio manager at Schroders in the Global Resource Equities team, uh, managing the Sustainable Food and Water Fund and the Global Energy Transition Fund. Thank you, Phoebe Stone, and I'm partner ahead of sustainable investing at LGT Wealth Management. So I head up our sustainable investment team and offer sustainable portfolio solutions to financial advisors, private clients, uh, charities and institutions. Thank you. I'm Susanna, Susanna Coutinho. I work at Main Street Partners. We are an advisor. We help our clients to build their portfolios. We provide the universes that then they can pick up companies, uh, issuers and build their own strategies. And our main focus is pretty much on themes, uh, healthcare, food, education, clean tech. Um, it's the core of our activity. Great, thanks. Okay, let's begin. Benefits and drawbacks of thematic investing. Sure. So I guess in, in our case, just to put some context around it, um, so I run a, a, an impact fund, a global equity impact fund, so it's listed companies. Um, it's, it's divided around eight themes, so there are eight uh, exciting themes um, that basically try to capture uh, those businesses that are in very nascent industries today but are ultimately transforming the economic systems uh, in which, well, you know, which operate our world. Um, so I think from a benefit point of view, the obvious um, you know, thing that should hopefully be clear from that is that you know, might be a dirty word, but financial returns are, are, are something which is very much uh, related to what we do in that ultimately we're looking for you know, tomorrow's leaders today. Um, 
I think it's a great way as well as, as ex, you know, in terms of explaining to clients where your money is, because a lot of people can resonate with the sort of themes that we're looking at. So I think what happens, what we find, at least in terms of anecdotes that are offered to us, is that you know, because the companies that we are, we are investing in are selling something which is you know, helping to do something which is very much you know, in, the, in, the, in the public eye right now, um, it becomes much easier to explain how that company might grow and how it might generate financial returns as a result of that. Yeah. So if you've got eight themes, that seems like, you know, you can um, see the interlinks between all those and address some of those. If you're looking at one theme, so Felix, if you're looking just at water, are you missing the bigger picture or can you still address some of those interconnected issues? So I, I, I've got to quickly add that it's food and water for, for that fund, but I completely take your point. So I think if you're, if you're looking at one theme, I, I think it is going to fit within a wider portfolio. And I think there's always going to be a bit of a, a tug of war for the end client about how specific they want to be in actually trying to solve a specific problem and kind of the fund that you need to do that whilst also having a portfolio that's diversified. And I guess taking a step back and, and maybe uh, tying into the end of a, a panel that I heard earlier, there's been this kind of perception that thematic is really synonymous with growth and high multiple and longer duration. And I think that's why actually having funds you know, like the Sustainable Food and Water Fund, but also the Energy Transition Fund, which actually have very different characteristics, really starts to, to help because it means that even through kind of more volatile periods like we're seeing, clients can still have that thematic exposure, but actually it's just a little bit more diversified. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, coming back to what ultimately we're trying to do as Article 9 funds, we're trying to solve very, very precise societal problems. In the case of food and water, it's producing 70% more food whilst using two-thirds of the resources by 2050. In the case of the energy transition, it's decarbonizing and electrifying and making the whole system more efficient. Mm -hmm. So I think... There are trade-offs. I, I, I think that you know, this has to be seen in a wider portfolio context, um, and, and that's where we kind of sit, I guess. Yeah, okay. So Phoebe, would, would, would you agree, I mean, when you're looking at creating portfolios for your clients, it has to come as a part of that, and what, what conversations are you having with your clients? So unsurprisingly, clients get very excited and interested in themes and thematic investing because it really brings a portfolio and investing to life, particularly to end clients. So clients of financial advisor firms that we deal with or, or ultra high net worth. But you have this uh, dichotomy between the interest in the theme and running a portfolio which is looking to generate strong and consistent returns whilst trying to balance between those themes at certain points in the cycle which is extremely difficult to do effectively. So we use a balance of, in some cases, dedicated thematic funds, and in other cases, more funds like the, the ones that Tim runs, where he's underneath the bonnet, therefore choosing the, the, the theme at that point in the cycle when it's mm. most attractive. And I think it's really important when it comes to sustainable investing because you do see these, these hot themes. We saw it with nutrition last summer. We saw it with green hydrogen at the beginning of 2000. Uh, and 20. So being in and out of these themes effectively is, is extremely important. So it's trying to satisfy clients' interest and demand and, and pulling out the case studies whilst doing my job properly and gen generating those returns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Susanna, are there companies or, or, or anything that's missing out from this kind of approach to investing um, if we get sort of too excited, if clients get too excited about this? 
other areas that can help? Um, yes, I, I believe these type of strategies are very um, much, pretty much about finding new ideas, finding new companies that fit in these themes. And in some cases, you might miss out smaller players because they are not so much out there in terms of ESG information. Um, it's difficult to get access. So uh, this could be um, a problem for this type of strategies. What we do in the company is that we try to identify pure players that are good in terms of ESG performance and that tackle a specific theme. But I can see things changed a little bit, in, well, quite a lot actually, in the past years. And nowadays you see even pure players very, very understanding the value of this information, understanding the value of coming up to the market, engaging with investors and exposing their own credentials in terms of ESG performance um, or KPIs. So I think nowadays we have more options to run this type of portfolios or at least to generate ideas to our clients, which is the case of my company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting point. Thank you. Um, Felix, you mentioned your fund's an Article 9 fund, so we've been covering quite a lot of fund launches on ESG Clarity, definitely keeps us busy, thanks for that. Um, and, you know, there's a lot, a lot of thematic funds in this area that, that come up as well, and a lot of them tend to be Article 9. I mean, is this a good way of um, meeting these new regulatory requirements, or what are the bits... Briefly, I think, because regulation is not a super sexy topic, but what are the kind of key regulatory points that, that we should kind of bring up in this area? So I, I think we've kind of already touched on, on one really in interesting kind of distinction there, which is the difference mm -hmm. between the universe creation and then mm -hmm. how companies are actually reporting or, or, or operating. Um, I, I, you know, the, the way that we've approached this, and I think, you know, that this is still part of a journey, which is a massive cliche, so apologies, but, um, you know, e even when we're doing the work for the regulator right now, I think this is a reflexive process. And I think for us, actually, the universe creation is a central part of being an Article 9 fund because I think you've got to start with the problem and work your way backwards. And again, maybe just linking back to your first question as well, part of that involves addressing an entire value chain, not just getting too specific in a way that maybe on the surface means that you're having less tricky conversations with clients because things are more intuitive, but actually, when you're taking a step back and trying to solve the problem, it's going less of a way to get there. And I, I think that's why you need these two other kind of levers at your disposal. The first is that universe creation, and the last one is the engagement. And I think you know, what we as an industry need to get better at is really showing the engagement, because ultimately, that's the shortest jump to impact for public equity, in my mind. Um, so... Yeah, I, I've completely forgotten the beginning of your question, if I'm honest. Um, but I, I think from a regulatory perspective, um, we feel the Article 9 is right because it's so built around this problem. We've built it out as a value chain rather than kind of trying to stick to things that are too obvious. And to be honest, in food and water, there's a lot of controversial areas. And I think you know, whether that's um, things like GMO or, or use of pesticides, and I think that's why you've just got to have a really well-articulated policy on these things because ultimately shying away from them or pretending they don't exist doesn't solve the problem um, mm. from our perspective. And they're all, they're all interlinked. Yeah. I mean, this, this idea of showing the engagement has come up in a couple of the panels. I mean, how? what are, what are some practical tips? What, what advice do you all have for, for this? I mean, I suppose that's the big question, isn't it? But, yeah, I mean, how are we going to show the engagement? 
Some of the examples we've seen of fund managers, the engagement is done by the underlying fund managers like yourselves, is done on a thematic basis. And that wasn't really part of our script uh, today, but I think actually it's quite a good link with the theme of this panel mm -hmm. and linking in with companies in different parts of the world in the same or related industries and passing on that best practice is some of the most mm -hmm. powerful, powerful use of engagement that, that, that we see in the stuff that clients actually get most excited about. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, and I think, sorry, just to, to finish off on that, because I think it's, it's really interesting actually now that there's um, more and more people are realizing that engagement isn't just about the company, because companies don't exist in, their, you know, in a bubble. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's about changing the system. And I think you know, what we're trying to focus on more and more is engaging with companies which we might not invest in, but who might consume some of the impactful solutions that some of our portfolio companies do end up selling into them. Of course, that benefits them if they do start to consume more of those solutions. Uh, and it benefits the consuming company because, of course, you know, ultimately they can make their business better and make the system, get the system to where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Maybe just a very quick real-world example of that. And I think, again, being, being based around global resource equities for us has got massive advantages there <coughs> because we're talking to the integrated energy companies, we're talking to the green hydrogen electrolyzer companies, and we're talking to a company like Yara in the fertilizer space. Yeah. And actually, you know, right now we're working with these companies and engaging with them to try and work out how to transport green hydrogen most efficiently through ammonia. And you're beginning to see the JVs that link up all of these companies that you're having dialogues with. But I think the, the other push factor, and maybe going to kind of engagement on reporting, is that because scope three emissions are now so on the table, this is going to require dialogue across the value chain. And that's why if you're talking to everyone, then you begin to get that kind of lattice of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that has advantages not only for the impact you're having, but also for you as an investor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, Phoebe, let's come on to the SDGs as a way of um, communicating with clients and making some of these links that we've been talking about. How are they uh, used? How are they used with clients? And... Um, you know, maybe if there are kind of limitations, I mean, they weren't sort of initially set up as an investment tool. So um, how has the kind of evolution of this uh, gone? They weren't set up as an investment tool, <clears throat> but they certainly were a call to arms to the finance industry to demonstrate that we need more than just supranational and national organisations. We need more than <clears throat> philanthropic capital. Capital markets need to pay a part of the solution here. But I'm sure we're all aware that not all of those 17 UN SDGs are investable. And looking at those sub-goals, that's increasingly clear. So I think it is a bit of a mistake um, by some investors out there to use all 17 or try and map some part of all of their investment process, or if it's a business, all part of their value to one or more of the 17 goals. And increasingly, that is seen as, as rainbow washing, to, to use yet another uh, washing term. term. Um, we use them in our investment process, we use them to inspire some really exciting themes, recognising that liquid markets can solve or contribute uh, benefit around 11 of the UN SDGs. But we have um, a, a quite a holistic uh, proposition for clients, including philanthropy, including private market capital, and using that framework we can, we can target um, the 17. Uh, but we obviously talk to fund managers and ask them about how they use them in their process. Uh, but fundamentally, it's an, usually used as an, a source of inspiration, a source of ideas. And then talking to clients, we can then map portfolios using the UNSDG framework, looking at revenue. But of course, that's only one way and a very small way of thinking about and monitoring impact.
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ultimately, I think it's a good communication tool, but it does not end there. It's just a starting point for your initial discussion. Then you have to do all the exercise of addressing a specific SDG, a very quantitative process based on revenues, not aiming to address all of them together because it's unrealistic. So it serves the purpose as a good communication tool, but should not be overused not to risk, you know, in, in greenwashing kind of um, approach. It's interesting, actually, where you used the term addressing as well. I think, you know, one thing we discussed um, previously was the, the distinction between alignment with the SDGs and contribution to the SDGs. Yeah. And that sounds like, you know, spitting hairs, it sounds like a bit of a nuance, but actually, as far as we're concerned, the real opportunity here in terms of thematic growth is really coming from contributing towards solutions towards achieving those SDGs. Those products and services that can, you know, affect a change against one of those underlying targets that Phoebe alluded to ultimately are, are products and services that, you know, as we recognize increasingly the need to solve them, are going to become increasingly in demand. And that therefore, if you are a small or medium-sized listed en- equity, it goes to you know goes out saying that ultimately your revenues are going to be growing as a result of that demand growth, and therefore that is going to be transformational to your market cap and your valuation over time as more and more of that product or service is sold to try and solve or address that challenge. Mm-hmm. So they really are the starting point for yeah. the uh, you know for defining what the, the themes mean at a more granular level. But you know to, to, to what some people have said is it's not really it doesn't really end there. They are a starting point, and that's kind of it. In, in a bid to be spicy, I guess the question is um, how much of that gets priced in as well? Because I, I completely agree with that. You have the kind of pure play disruptors that are coming with products and services that you can that are directly helping others to, to solve their own kind of UNSDG misalignment in a lot of cases. Um, but I guess that goes back to one of our previous comments, which was some of those were the companies that maybe had longer duration value yes. in them. So I guess the other, you know, from an investment perspective, is it more interesting to also try and find the companies that are transitioning? Should we be giving credit to, let's say, a BP or a Shell, who right now are contributing a very large portion of, of scope three emissions, but are actually helping to reduce that from a standing point? Or, or likewise with fertilizers and, and, you know, the several other examples. Should we be giving those companies credit? And actually, if you look at where those companies are currently trading from a valuation perspective, does that offer that kind of trade-off and that diversification in thematics by offering a value proposition whilst also helping solve problems? I'd, I'd argue yes, um, but as I say. I'm not a fan of labels, but I, and of course we have another one now with impact, but I think you know, it is the same. It, you know, there are always different ways of, of generating returns, and I think you know, you're absolutely right that, that some of those, the equities in our universe definitely got pulled into some crazy valuations. I mean, there are, you know, we can talk about hydrogen stocks, you know, trading on multiples to sales because there are no earnings in yeah. some of the cases and I think and I think that's where ultimately that's what an active manager has to add the value in and I think you know I think the, the, the SDGs are broad enough in that it's not just about renewable energy it's not just about decarbonization which is of course very important but of course it's also about you know educating um, you know, nations whereby the education is well below the OECD standards it's about healthcare you know think about COVID, there's been a lot of talk and panels about COVID. Um, what we're going, what's going on right now in the healthcare industry is, is not dissimilar to what happened in the tech industry in the early 1980s. 
uh, with the shift towards biotech and, and new personalized medicine. So I think that the, the good thing is that, that, you know, there are always different ways to skin a cat, and probably that's the worst analogy I can use. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately there are, you know, the, the great thing is that there's always somewhere where there isn't, you know, undervaluation. Mm-hmm. I think when we're talking about evolution, there's certainly been an evolution in understanding that solving one UNSDG in isolation is not solving anything. Mm-hmm. And they need to be seen um, as an interconnected set of challenges. Um, and I think the idea of the just transition and the fact that it's moving higher and higher up, quite rightly, the priority agenda is a demonstration of that. Um, the social a- aspects totally intertwined with the environmental issues that we face today. Yeah, okay. Well, we, we've, so we've started touching on some of these themes in healthcare, food and water, um, high, you know, hydrogen, well, I suppose not a theme, but you know, what, what are some of the opportunities in these areas? Um, and, um, and then, Felix, you mentioned getting some of the more public, problematic um, areas within these to transition. Uh, what are sort of the, the, the big moves you have to make for those high emitters or whatever the theme might be? So, uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Felix, if you talk a bit about transitioning and also, yeah, some of the opportunities you're seeing as well and some of these themes. So I, I think um, when we're talking about opportunities, I might start on food and water and probably run out of time. Um, but what's really interesting is that, you know, a year or so ago, we were, I, I was stood up on stages like this trying to make the kind of long-term structural argument for food and water. Um, and, and, you know, as I said at the beginning, there's really two parts to the problem. One is that we've got to produce a load more food, and the other is the kind of sustainability angle. I think what's really interesting now is that we not only have that structural argument, but because of the Ukraine crisis, because of the energy crisis and the connection with food, we now also have a cyclical one as well. And so I think, you know, at at the end of the day, it's the exact same thing that we've seen with energy. You need to have returns being available at a sufficient level to incentivize capital to flow into renewables projects, hydrogen projects, et cetera. And part of that involves having visibility on what my returns are going to be on the out years. What you've now seen is that you know, farmers have never had higher cash margins. And actually, the reason that's a good thing for society is that a lot of these farmers have been putting off buying the sustainability, promoting equipment, and all the rest. Um, and, and so suddenly, the cyclical opportunity really accelerates that structural opportunity. And, and it's the exact same for food security and energy security, except this time being driven by government action. So I think... In terms of the opportunities, suddenly we're seeing this really interesting moment where the valuations aren't reflecting the opportunity. When we launched the, the Sustainable Food and Water Fund about nine months ago, um, the overall universe was trading at around about a 15% discount on multiples basis to, to the ACWI, and that's now at around parity. But actually, if you believe that we're going into an economy where you can't rely on general economic growth as much, suddenly those structural drivers become even more important. And even better if you're also being hedged to the inflation that's, that's kind of causing the, the rising interest rates. And so I think, you know, I, I've tried to keep almost a cynical argument there. I think that the societal and environmental um, problems that need to be solved are still core to this. But there's now a very good value argument as well. Susanna, you, you, you look at a lot of themes. What's the sort of mo- most crucial um, thing that you're seeing and, and where are some of the opportunities? I would uh, agree. It's the food for me, the, the, the topic of the day. Uh, food insecurity, I would say, because of all the crises. Uh, Post-COVID, we, still, we are still discussing a crisis. And uh, what I believe, it's if we want to tackle this aspect, this theme, 
we need to invest in the enables of the food transition. We need to select the, the, the components of this value chain that is going to give us more productivity with less resources. So it is a risk um, factor. It's not without um, controversies. It's, it's, it's a risk area, but it's something we really need to tackle going forward. It's going to be the next crisis going to be done food um, together with water <laughs> if we have to select one I would select the food one I think one of the exciting things about the food theme um, and the idea of regenerative agriculture is the fact that it does tackle and to some degree or in many degrees reverse biodiversity loss which is such a major risk for all of us and all companies in all countries um, and rethinking farming practices being more precise about your application of fertilizer, where you use it, looking to uh, regenerate and protect soil health and water health by the waterways. Um, is a, it, it's a really good move that we're seeing so much of that happen so quickly. Obviously appalling that something has to happen, so such an enormous act of, of violence has to happen to refocus minds. But the outcome of it is that this idea around food systems needing to be so much more stable yeah. um, is much higher on the agenda. Mm -hmm. And did you want to add anything about healthcare or any other sort of things? Oh, I feel like I have to agree with the food thing. You might, you know, there's a lot of pressure, but no, no, I think I definitely agree with that, though. I, I think it's an area which we're, we're interested in. I think some of the solutions that we're looking at are slightly further down the line, things like biological crop protection, biological um, uh, fertilizer companies. Um, it's still a sort of early days for them. Precision ag is probably something which is a bit more tangible. Um, but I think, you know, it's in our nature, call me a contrarian, to, to try and, you know, look at areas which are being less covered by the market. So I think, you know, typically we're, you know, what we're trying to focus on are things which aren't perhaps so front and centre right now. Things like, I alluded to education, it's, it's really, in particular, Brazilian education is, is, is a market which we are um, uh, really very much focused on, um, in particular in the healthcare space, you know, with respect to a massive shortage of doctors they have in Brazil, which obviously over the last few years became very, very, um, very apparent, of course, given the given the COVID challenges, uh, and then linking in perhaps from that, as I, I kind of touched upon earlier on, you know, I really I really do think what's happening in the healthcare space um, is 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 a game changer of our of, of many of our lives. I think it's going to be a game changer in terms of an investment from a financial point of view. Um, as we transition towards second generation biotech, as we transition towards more precision medicines, and of course, as we've seen with COVID, as we transition towards more, more technological ways of diagnosing at an earlier stage some of the both communicable and non-communicable diseases that are, that are challenging to us. So I think, you know, right now, it perhaps uh, outside of the, the big defensive pharma space isn't, you know, very much in in the investor's eye and I think that's really an opportunity because uh, biotech itself has, has probably not been this cheap in, in certainly uh, a decade uh, but more than biotech in the life sciences space the companies that are enabling these biotech companies to come up with these new generation therapies that is really where the opportunity is. Mm -hmm. Okay so just before we come to our kind of final takeaway points for the audience and an attempt to be spicy Nuclear, which has sort of controversially been, been included in the, um, the European uh, kind of um, taxonomy that just came out. Thoughts on that for anyone that wants to have them? 
I'm, I'm happy to, to kick us <laughs> off. Um, so, I, I mean, nuclear, again, taking a step back, I, I think ultimately why is nuclear now a controversial topic? Um, it's obviously because power prices in Europe and around the world have, have been going up an incredible amount, a lot of that being a function of, of gas prices um, as, as the world tries to reorientate away from, from Russian gas, or at least Europe does. Nuclear is seen as obviously the solution because it's offering non-intermittent power. So really the question for me is, is there other ways to get that? And, and I think you know, one, of the things, one of the reasons why we've been a little bit more skeptical on, on nuclear is first the huge lead times. So the idea that politicians come out and, and go, there's a crisis, there's an emergency, we need a solution. Nuclear is not the next thing you expect at the end of that sentence. Mm. Um, even if you look at the kind of Boris Johnson plan, the first nuclear uh, power plant is meant to come online in, uh, in 2032. So we will have a few high energy bills before then. Um, I, I think the frustration is, you know, there is still very slow moving regulatory hurdles in the renewable space. And, and actually, especially for things like offshore wind, we've seen positive things like um, some of the UK bidding auctions actually being upscaled on the number of, of megawatts being put out there. But there's still a lot of red tape and, and things like Germany where, you know, to get something built or, or a wind turbine repowered just takes so long. So actually, if we want to solve that crisis, that is a much more efficient way of doing that. Um, also, the benefit of, of offshore wind is that these turbines are so large, they're tapping into much higher wind currents, which are less intermittent. Add storage into the mix, which obviously you know it, it is tricky when you've got volatility and metals pricing, but the technologies are there. I, it just feels to me like nuclear technology as it stands doesn't offer a great solution because also partly because of the law of small numbers, the levelized cost of electricity from this stuff is much much higher than any of the alternatives I've just spoken about, and actually is much more varied. So again, the risk, the financial risk you're taking as a utility company is much greater. We've already seen flip-flopping in, in the political um, approach to this stuff. Who's to say that we don't swing back the other way? So I think there's a lot of reasons why nuclear is kind of quite a tricky technology, which is it, it, it will be part of the solution, but I don't think it's a, a silver bullet necessarily. Hopefully that's... I mean, the only thing I, would add, I mean, completely agree with that. I think, you know, we're, we're looking... I mean, we've sort of sniffed around um, um, small module reactor technology, which is perhaps, you know, to your point, is, is, a, is a solution of getting nuclear on stream faster and, and you know, as the name suggests, being more uh, modular. Uh, but generally, I think, you know, if you look at uh, um, renewable space, you know, the real challenge over there is red tape. And, and, um, and I think that's at least what governments are paying lip service towards trying to reduce. And I think that really will be the, the, um, the opportunity. And I think what's, what's interesting about renewable energy, and I'm sure, I'm sure you've observed the same thing, is that over the last decade, as we've seen this massive in growth in the installed base of whether it's onshore, offshore wind uh, or solar, forecasts have continuously been behind the curve uh, as to how much is, 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 uh, is, is actually been rolled out. Um, and I don't think that's that's going to change. I, I still think that that is really the quickest win, um, particularly in Europe, because of the, the political environment, um, and, and and that will ultimately be how we see it play out. It is interesting to see, though, the change and effective realignment in domestic politics from Japan and even from a country like Germany, which looks to be halting the closure of their nuclear power plants, and the fact that Japan now has this nuclear strategy in the space of six months, 
there's been just a fundamental realignment. So I completely take your point. There might be the flip-flop back, but equally, that has been a big sea change that we've seen in a very short period of time. I think one thing that sort of disappeared in terms of um, prominence is the ecological, enormous ecological damage connected to nuclear nuclear waste. But also, if a, even if a small nuclear reactor is close to the sea and the coast, the impact on sea life of the heating up of the local surrounding area is enormous. And the biodiversity loss in the marine life in, in that localised area is huge. So <clears throat> I think that it's a very, very complex picture. It's certainly not black and white. It's not the silver bullet. And there's a lot of things to consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I would agree. Uh, it's a tricky technology. It is clean, but it has a lot of uh, second um, effects. Uh, so if you want to consider all the variables, you really need to, to assess what's most valuable to you. If biodiversity loss is going to be so great, can't you find an alternative? If the investment is going to be so great, because it, it will, can't, can, isn't there a better way? So everything needs to be taken, you know, taken into account, and it's not a, a quick fix anyway. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, just, just to finish off then, if we can go around and um, sort of give, uh, not just a takeaway, like a, uh, it'd, be, it'd be great to have an action point, you know, what can people go home, wake up tomorrow morning and do? What's the one thing that they should do, in all of your opinions, starting with you, Susanna? <laughs> I think uh, due diligence is, is the key word, the two words, and if you want to select companies to invest, to be exposed to, you really need to conduct your homework. You need to make sure these companies respect all the policies in place, regulation, you need to make sure that they respect human rights. Well, we saw S in ESG um, is, is quite key, social and environmental metrics, and fundamental to all of this is governance. You really need to make sure you trust the companies the members, the company's governance, the board, because ultimately they are the ones that will lead to outperformance. They are the ones that are going to make the, the change in the company. So you really need to make sure you trust the board. The corporate governance is a key for all the companies you invest. Mm -hmm. And we have a governance panel coming With up next. Brilliant. Uh, Phoebe, what are your action points? Picking up on one of Felix's points um, earlier around the formation of a universe, you want to be creative, you want to be thinking about the second and third uh, derivative um, impacts, benefits, etc., or links to the theme that you're investing in. But also you need to be care about the sort of tenuous element of some of that. And certainly when I'm looking through some of the thematic funds out there and, and asking the fund managers about the justification for some of those companies, it isn't as strong as, as you would want it to be. So yes, do your mm -hmm. homework and do your homework on how uh, material that company mm -hmm. is in relation to that theme and whether it's really solving the issue at hand, solving the theme, possibly contributing to the theme, or just in some way linked. Um, <clears throat> because you're not really thematically investing if you're just investing in a company that's in some way um, associated and, and not really contributing in a positive way. Mm -hmm. Not wanting to, to keep kind of following on, but um, maybe some uh, following on from something Phoebe said. I, I think you know, hold managers to account, hold companies to account. I think we need more tools and more evidencing, and and maybe less reliance on the kind of what can be a little bit of a black box approach with with some of the ESG scoring that's out there. Um, 
I think it, that the fact that these scores don't correlate um, should probably tell us something, and I think that we need to be a little bit more thoughtful in how we approach this, rather than just looking for an easy option that allows us to keep doing what we've always, doing, uh, always been doing. Gosh, I've been thinking all this time and I still haven't come up with a snappy answer. But, uh, you know, I, I think echoing on from some of those thoughts is that, you know, I think ultimately if you're looking to harness the, you know, the, 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 the returns that can come from a powerful theme, purity is key. If there's one word that I would emphasize, purity. You know, I, I see, we see a lot of funds who uh, you know, claim to be perhaps climate solutions and have Microsoft as their biggest holding. And I think ultimately... You've got managers out there who can give you genuine exposure to a particular theme, which is what really drives the financial returns. Um, you know, I think that's the exciting bit about it is these are investments you can make where you can really hang your hat on the growth that comes from some of the things that we've been talking about on this panel. But you don't want that diluted down, as, as we've been discussing. You want to find uh, evidence of that that pure exposure. So I'd really just echo what everyone's saying and say, look for purity, because it's really the impact case that is the investment case. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Okay, well, thanks very much. That was very interesting. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.